This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stemp. And this is John Rojas. I hope you all are ready to Zoom today. Boo. <laughs> you didn't like that? Boo. <laughs> Terrible puns. It wasn't a pun. It's like, I'm just saying. Today we are interviewing the author of the brand new book, Zoom, Surprising Ways to Supercharge Your Career. And I'll tell you what, speaking of supercharging careers, the author and our guest, 26 years old, and he writes for Fortune Magazine, covers their 40 under 40, as well as he writes for SI, he writes for Salon, NPR, Wall Street Journal, New York Post. Man, I honestly, I don't want to read anymore because it's kind of ridiculous, but so he is a Zoomer, if you will. Boo again. <laughs> So, I, you know, it's a great episode. This week, we're talking to Daniel Roberts. But before we get to the interview, please do me a huge favor. Head over to iTunes, either on your iPod, iPhone, or computer. Leave us a star rating, a comment, a review. What about their iPad? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How did I forget about the iPad? What about the iPad, too? The iPad as well. They don't call it that anymore. I think that one's discontinued. But Yeah. No, let everybody know if you like the show. Thank you for emailing us, telling us some the stuff you like, sometimes the stuff you don't like, leaving reviews on iTunes. Really cool. Make sure to check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Love when you connect with us there. So we are going to jump into the interview with Daniel. We're going to talk the 40 under 40 list, which is so cool. We talk about Under Armour and Google, but we also talk about some chefs and some cool stuff. Why am I telling you? Why not have Daniel tell you? I was just going to say, why don't you guys just listen and hear it for yourself? Well, Daniel, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really excited. You know, I want to talk to you about the book that you just wrote, but it's interesting because, and, and that book is Zoom for everyone out there. It's interesting because you wrote this with a group of people. Is that correct? That's right. It's really better uh, to think of it as a fortune effort. And, you know, I always uh, use the phrasing, you know, our book. It's, it's the product of our 40 under 40 list, which we've been doing for five years now. The first thing I thought of is how did you score this gig? I mean, 40 under 40 is one of the coolest things ever. I have been reading it probably, I don't even know, 10 years maybe since I knew what money was. But uh, Well, I'm glad you'd say that, first of all, because you know I've noticed the number of lists uh, by magazines that rank young business executives uh, has multiplied. I mean, these lists are everywhere now. And I'd like to think that we are uh, one of the most authoritative, but certainly we're not the only people doing this. And I think the reason these lists have proliferated is 
because the people have multiplied. You know, they're just younger and younger executives at big companies now. And that's a, a tide that is growing quickly. We've been doing our list for uh, this year. The list comes out in October and it'll be the fifth uh, iteration of the list. So that was part of the impetus. You know, we sat down and said, can we take some of the best and most interesting stories of people who've been on the list in the past, many of whom have aged out, you know, they, they don't have to still be under 40 to be in the book. But can we take the most interesting stories and put them together in a book that uh, really tells each one as a narrative, but also uh, has lessons that can be gleaned, you know, career lessons? No, I mean, it definitely makes sense out of any uh, list that's been compiled, the ones that you're going to want to learn from are these guys. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people these aren't necessarily the most interesting of all, or at least the most powerful of all the people who've ever been on our list, but they're uh, people who we think total, you know, in total make a good mix of industries, of backgrounds, of personal style. I mean, some of these people are um, what you might call company men who've managed to rise within one big corporation slowly and methodically. And some of them are really more uh, edgy, aggressive entrepreneurs who've taken on a big industry and said, you know what, I have a great idea. I'm going to run with it. I'm not going to rest until I've built a big company uh, from the ground up. No, exactly. And you know, one thing you mentioned that you've been doing it for five years or so. I could have swore, didn't you? Got, wasn't there a 40 under 40 back in like 99 or something like that? There was. And, uh, you know, that was before my time at Fortune. I've been here for three years. But the initial 40 under 40 at Fortune was based solely on wealth, which, um, you know, I think made sense back then. But, but nowadays, I, I think purely talking about someone's money isn't as sexy. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, uh, magazines like Portfolio uh, closed down, you know, magazines that just celebrated big, rich hedge fund guys. And so they canned that iteration of the list and they met for a brainstorming session in 2008 and they decided, you know, is there a way we can bring this list back but base the rankings on something more subjective, something editorial? And so nowadays what we like to say is that it's a ranking of the 40 uh, most influential people in business that are under 40 years old. But even by that definition, you know, I caution that, you know, there are probably people who uh, may not be in the 40 most powerful, but they're certainly among the most impressive because of what they've done so young. And I think that is one of the things that makes the list so unique and so original is, like you said, you could go up and just slap a, you know, a net worth on somebody and put them on a list. And that happens. A lot of people do that. It's interesting. But to really look into the, you know, what makes them powerful, respected, rich, all those things, that's a whole other thing entirely. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, just to, to mention, one of the other things I do here, you know, we're in the same building as SI, as Sports Illustrated. And it's just funny to be discussing this list because uh, something I, I did this year, you know, we're sort of sister publications. But a list that SI does that I uh, did for them this year was the Fortunate 50. And it's their, it's a straight, pure ranking of the highest earning athletes. And that's fun as well. But just like you say, I mean, you look at a list like that and you think, gosh, this is interesting. These are the 50 richest athletes, but it's not the 50 most interesting athletes in my mind. Uh, not by any stretch. I mean, there are a lot of guys who I'd love to read a story about who aren't making the most money. And that's why I agree with you. I mean, the, the way we do the 40 under 40 now is, you know, we have a big reporting team and we spend weeks talking about, well, what are you seeing in this industry? Who's, who's interesting here? What's a startup that you've been following that seems to be growing uh, at a crazy pace? And, and who's the man or woman who created it from nothing? 
And I, I like that more. I agree. It, it's not just about wealth. I think that's not really uh, that sexy anymore. And actually, you touched on it right there because that was going to be my next question is how the hell – I mean you just get in a room and is there a criteria? <laughs> is it, hey, we're going to get massive pots of coffee and we're just going to chug through tons of companies? Do you each pick different segments or how does that work? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a question we get a lot and sometimes it's hard because you know this has become a list that – frankly, has some cloud and, and people know about it and they want to be on it. And so every year we get more and more PR pitches from mm-hmm. companies. They say, oh, uh, you know, I'm repping X science startup and our CEO is 33 and making waves. And they want to know, well, what exactly is the criteria? And what I tell people is it's an, it's an editorial product. I mean, in every sense of the word. And sometimes that's frustrating for people. But you know, it does mean that it is subjective in some ways. I mean, there are people who might have companies that are making a lot more money and are a lot more significant in the world than some of the people who will make the list this year. But either, you know, we, we just don't think they're as interesting or either they've already been on the list, uh, though we do do repeats. But all that is just to say that uh, it is a, <laughs> it's a, a group of voices. You know, it's a, it's a team effort. And it's mostly the, the young writers here that are energetic and excited and, and follow the young business people. So it's, it's certainly the most fun list we do, I'd say. Uh, we have people who work on, you know, the 100 best companies to work for list. You know, we have a whole host of franchises. And some of them might say otherwise. But I think 40 Under 40 is just by far the most fun uh, gig that we have. And we have three big reporting meetings that involve the whole team. And those do get uh, boisterous. They get out of hand and they last for, you know, a number of hours. And then it comes down to a smaller group. Um, I help the editor of the list, Lee Gallagher. Uh, I'm her lead on the list. And, and we end up having hard decisions every year. You know, we, we end up with maybe 50 people that we think are just fantastic and should be on it. And ultimately, we have to cut it to 40 slots. And sometimes we uh, slip in ties, <laughs> although we're trying to have fewer ties this year. But uh, it's definitely difficult. And there are people who don't make the list who are fantastic and, and deserve to make it. So it's hard. Do you think there are a, there's a lot of bias flying around in terms of uh, the younger, the better, or they've already been on the list. So regardless of the fact that they're awesome, they can't be on the list. Things like that. <laughs> uh, gosh, it's... I mean, it's that's a loaded we, question. <laughs> well, sure. And and you never want to, uh, you know, give too much of a window into the process. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we face these questions all the time. And, and I think that Lee Gallagher and I over-deliberate about this. You know, I, I think that we stress and obsess over questions that probably the average reader doesn't even think about. Like we say, well, gosh, this person is on every year, you know, but well, but it's Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) (laughs) We have to have Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I go to bat for certain people and I say, gosh, you know, uh, I'll I'll give you guys a great example actually. And and it's a, it's a way to return to the book because he's one of the 31 people featured in this book. But Kevin Systrom, uh, is the founder of Instagram. And obviously now, I, you know, it's sort of in the general lexicon. We all know Instagram. But two years ago when we were talking about putting him on the list, and I'm not going to suggest that we discovered him by any means. I mean, Instagram had been around for maybe six months and he had been written about elsewhere, but it hadn't sold yet and it hadn't made any money yet. It wasn't profitable because mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, trying to make money. I mean, as I'm sure you guys see, all these startups, you know, Snapchat, blah, 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 all these apps, they don't need to worry at first about making money because they have backers. And they just keep raising funding and uh, they can think about how to make money later. So at this point, Instagram was a a photo sharing app 
And in the most basic sense, you could look at it and brush it off and say, gosh, it's an app that makes photos look like Polaroids, you know, <laughs> like whatever. And all it had going for it was this insane growth. And we just said, gosh, it's not making money. You know, it's been written about a little bit. You could diminish the idea, but look at that growth. I mean, the, the number of users had exploded in a matter of weeks, months. And we said, you know what, this is just going to be huge. And so compared to Mark Zuckerberg, compared to Marissa Meyer, who, you know, was becoming the CEO of Yahoo, compared to Daniel Ek, who had created Spotify, uh, it was a bit of a gamble, but it was just clear that Instagram was going to be huge. And we put them on the list. And then seven months later, it sold for a billion dollars. <laughs> now, wait, I have to ask you, have you gotten any just horribly wrong? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, imagine if you took a gamble on, I don't, I don't even know, John knows the tech world, but something, some app that looks great and then just completely flops. Sure. Um, and I'd, I'd caution that, you know, we're always careful, you know, we're always stressing that it's not just a tech list. Zinga. Obviously, when you do a list of young people succeeding in business, it's going to be heavily tech, but we try to keep it to uh, fewer than half of the slots right. being from the technology world. But um, yeah, absolutely. I, without naming names, you know, we had someone on the list, I think three years ago, who was um, a star at a, at a hedge fund and he sort of imploded uh, a little <laughs> bit later. But, you know, he, at that time he had made that money. It was true. He was a star. Uh, we put on the guy who was running Hulu three years ago. And um, Hulu, you know, a lot of people love it, but in many ways, from a business perspective, it has failed to live up to certain expectations. And that guy, um, Jason Keelar, I believe, just left Hulu. Okay. So uh, they're different. You know, at the time they go on, I think they're a big deal, but you can never be sure. Uh, another guy's, you know, we put LeBron James on. And then uh, his career for a short time sort of imploded. I mean, now he's, he's doing great. And he's in the book, too. We use him as an example of someone who had a very public failure that failure being, I'd say, doing a very egotistical TV special in, in which you... Wait, you bringing know, his talents to South Beach? You didn't like that? <laughs> right. What was the problem with that? Yeah, I don't know. But, um, but, you know, he was on the list and then he looked really bad for a year and a lot of people hated him. I'd say that he has bounced back mostly by doing what he's supposed to do, which is playing very good basketball. Yeah. No, so, I totally you know, agree. Be sure. Yeah. Now, I, and, and I do want... I'm going to jump into the book here in a minute because there's all types of great stuff in there. But it's just... This seems like the coolest job on the planet. I mean, you, you get to just research, hey, I'm going to look at awesome companies. I'm going to get to look at new technology or emerging ideas. And then I'm going to learn about the people that started it. And then I'm going to write about it. <laughs> and just a quick follow-up too. Do you get to sit down with any of these individuals when profiling them? We sit down with all of them. Oh, wow. And let's see. I <laughs> Well, to, to answer the first part of your question, I, I do love my job. Um you know, I always knew I wanted to do journalism, and it's a great spot. Surprisingly, and this is not to say, oh, you know, yay for us, look how hard we work, but the 40 Under 40 is, is not a year-round gig. I mean, we just uh, – I do a, a lot of other stuff in the magazine, which it's true is kind of crazy. I mean, we always say that we'd love to have two or three reporters who just work on this list all year round. I mean, then it could really right. – then we'd know that we didn't miss anyone. But, uh, you know, I, I write a lot of other stories in the magazine and everyone else who works on the list with us. We have a whole team of, of reporters. They work on three other lists. They each write features. They each do shorter stuff for the web. I mean, the amount – and I know that Fortune is not unique. This is just how it's going uh, across the industry. I mean, you know, look at all the cuts being made from newspapers and magazines. It means that those of us who are lucky enough to have a job are doing more and more and more work. And it's great. It's good to be busy. But it does mean that uh, this list, <laughs> yeah. uh, frankly, uh, gets made 
you know, quickly. Decisions get made quickly. I mean, we, we first meet to discuss this list in April. I don't know if that seems early or late for something that comes out the first week of October. <laughs> but uh, then we get going in earnest in June. And right now in August, we've just finalized the list. And now we're interviewing the people who are going to be on it. And we're writing the short uh, bios that run in the magazine. So it ends up being like a five-month process for something that is very significant and probably deserves a whole year of attention. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great gig. It's a great gig. So who has stuck out the most in your interviews? I mean, do you have someone or a couple of people that anytime you think of the 40 under 40 and the time you've been doing it, you're like, oh, I can put myself in the chair interviewing that person? Yeah. Uh, I have someone and, and luckily he's in the book. Um, what's interesting is he's actually, you could argue that he's a bit, um, this isn't really the right phrase to use, but, but smaller time than some of the other people on the list. I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook. Oh my God. Marissa Myers, the CEO of Yahoo, you know, Jack Dorsey co-founded Twitter and the mobile payments company Square. These are huge names. But last year we put someone on the list, uh, David Chang. And if you live in New York, he's a huge name, but if you're not in New York city, you might not have heard of him. He's a chef. And that too is, uh, you know, we love that it was an alternative industry. You know, so much of the list is tech and finance, and we don't often have people from the food world. But I think of Chang as a great representative of, of what we look for for the list. Um, you know, he's the son of Korean immigrants, and he went to uh, Trinity College in Connecticut, you know, tiny liberal arts college, um, majored in, I think, religion. You know, not someone you'd expect to now have a whole, um, a whole uh, empire. But that's what he has. He, he created uh, a small restaurant in the East Village, uh, Momofuku Noodle Bar. And I don't know if – now that I've told you the name, I don't know if Momofuku uh, rings a bell. It does. That's, definitely, yeah. 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 And that's the, the name of uh, the company, the whole line of restaurants. And today he has something like eight different restaurants, not just in New York. He has one in Toronto. He has one in Sydney, Australia. And, um, you know, in the whole huge food world, you know, he's not John George yet. <laughs> he's not Danielle Boulud. Um, any of those big TV guys, he's not, uh, Anthony Bourdain, but at, for his age, and he's like 35, I mean, he has eight restaurants. He, he has, he launched a food magazine that McSweeney's publishes that is visually stunning and does very well. Uh, he has a whole line of uh, cooking products coming out. I mean, there's like nothing he hasn't done and he's done it all with a very much, if I can say sort of a you attitude. <laughs> oh, you can say. <laughs> so, hey, but, but he really has. And in fact, um, he's a guy who just like has a really dirty mouth <laughs> and is totally uh, straightforward about it, doesn't really hide who he is. You know, he created, uh, he, he named the company Momofuku uh, in part because that's the first name of the inventor of ramen, you know, instant ramen, oh, yeah. which, he, which he lived off in college. Uh, but he also admits that he liked that name because it sounds like motherfucker. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so my point being, he's just someone who is totally all attitude. He's brash, he's aggressive, he has certainly alienated some people. And you could say, well, that's not the greatest role model. I mean, if you want to succeed in business, you are polite, you lick people's boots, you don't offend anyone. And in some cases, that's true, but he's offended a lot of people and he is thriving. Uh, so I just think he, he's a fabulous representative of the list. I mean, these are people who, in general, the people in the book, haven't been satisfied when they've hit a certain level of success that anyone else maybe 20 years ago would be like, oh, my God, look at me. This is great. I am a VP at a big corporation. I make, you know, six figures. I'm set. 
But these are people who get to that point, that impressive point, and they still want to keep going and keep charging. And they're like, it's not enough. It's not enough. I want to do more. I want to be bigger. And uh, there's something to be said for that. One of the reasons that I'm really excited about this book coming out in September is I want to read about Marissa Meyer because I actually followed her when she was at Google. I mean, she was, you know, kicking ass, had a good paying job there. And all of a sudden, you know, she decides to take the position over at Yahoo. What was something that you noticed about her or one of the things that made you understand why she made the jump from that prominent position at Google to a company that in its heyday was doing well, but was pretty much in its decline at that point. Or did you just ask her WTF? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I certainly, uh, you know, I I can talk about Marissa, but I should say that uh, she's one of the people who was covered by someone else on our, on our reporting team, uh, a senior editor here, uh, Patty Sellers, who's written about her a lot. And Patty Mm -hmm. runs our most powerful women's list, which is another fabulous franchise we do that has a conference associated with it. Uh, But, but the great thing about Marissa that, that I, I, I do know and that you can't really miss is, you know, she took this job knowing what a risk it was. I mean, I mean even me, you know, I'm 26 years old and, and I've, I've seen Yahoo go from, you know, w- when the Internet was first, uh, you know, starting out, Yahoo was the, the first big search giant and you'd go to Yahoo. And now when people say they have a Yahoo email address, you sort of think, oh, OK, so you're an old dinosaur. <laughs> exactly. You know I mean? it, it's, it's totally fallen out of favor. And. For her to take that job, it's a huge risk. The chapter in the book that includes Marissa's story, along with two others, uh, is named after something she herself told Patty. And what she said was that in her career, at every step of the way, she's always tried to be in over her head, that that's a great thing, that it's good to be in over your head. And similar to what I was saying about Chang, I mean, that really runs counter to the traditional wisdom. And I think that's what's interesting about her and, and a lot of these people is, you know, they take jobs or they try to invent something that everyone else says, just like you said, they say WTF or are you kidding? Like, that's absurd. I mean, to leave a great job at Google. And and she was in such a good position at Google that she was on our 40 under 40 list before she ever became the CEO of Yahoo. Right. She was on our list just because she was a high up VP at Google. She was like their fifth or their 10th hire ever. And um, what Patty has written about uh, in regards to Marissa is that what's interesting about her is, you know, you interview some tech execs and they're very bombastic. They're very, um, you know, it's very obvious that they're young and flying by the seat of their pants and, and what have you. But Marissa is extremely down to earth. Like she says, you know, her priorities are God, family, and the Packers. And she's like a huge, (laughs) um, which I love. And so, so in that way, she represents the list. And the other thing that's hard, I sort of both love and hate having to talk about this, but every year, uh, we get slammed on not having enough women on the list. Mm. You know, like last year, The Atlantic did a story, you know, Fortune's 40 under 40 list only has, you know, 11 women. And what Lee and I always tell people is we're upfront about that. We want to have more women. We'd love to have, you know, 20 women. We'd love to have 40 of the people be, be women. Mm-hmm. But it's reflective of the larger business scene. And it's very unfortunate. And we hope it changes. But right now, it's like you just don't see enough of these women in high up impressive positions at companies. And so that being said, you know, with with that being still unfortunately true, although becoming less true, that's why someone like Marissa is so impressive and so wonderful. No, and that's true. And you know what the cool thing is, is the book is titled, like we said, Zoom, but the subtitle, Surprising Ways to Supercharge Your Career. 
And even in the last two questions we've asked, you've kind of, you know, led with a person or a couple of people that you've spoken with, but talked about how they've gotten to where they've gotten. And there must be just themes. After doing this for a couple of years, you just see, I know what this person is going to say when I ask him this question. What are a couple of those themes that stick out to you? It's funny. A lot of people, you know, we didn't want the book to be all entrepreneurs, but it's certainly a, a large portion of the people in the book are, are people who created a startup. Um, and a lot of them talk about that moment. Those, those who created their own company, they talk about that moment where they thought this is really daunting and we are not going to succeed, but they just kept going. I, I mean, another, uh, just to, to cite a specific example, another person who's in the book and who was on the list more than once and who, uh, like David Chang, like Marissa, I think of as very um, archetypal of the list is Kevin Plank, who obviously is a, just a huge known name. He created Under Armour. And uh, Plank started the company when he was just a senior at U Maryland. He was on the football team. He didn't like the white tees that they wore under their, you know, the cotton white tee that everyone wears. Mm -hmm. uh, it would just get soaked with sweat and he'd be freezing and it weighs you down. And he just thought he could do something better. And I, I, I had the pleasure of uh, going to Under Armour headquarters maybe two years ago. It was my first big feature assignment at Fortune. And I got to profile Plank and the company. And when I sat down with Plank and one of his buddies, you know, he created, he co-founded the company with two other guys, um, one of whom cashed out and is now like a, a ranch farmer. <laughs> the other guy, the other guy was a lacrosse player and he's still at Under Armour today. His name is Kip Folks. And there's something that Kip said to me with Kevin in the room that I thought was so uh, illustrative. Of, all, of what all these people face, the, these entrepreneurs, he said, there was a moment where we were working out of Kevin's grandmother's basement and we had ordered our first round of shirts and the shirts were in like soggy cardboard boxes on the floor. <laughs> and they're looking at the boxes and, and it's like, look at these crappy boxes and look <laughs> at these shirts and we're in your grandma's basement and we think we're going to take on Nike. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous, you know? But they said, we, we believe in our idea and we think we can do it. And they hammered away and they started small and they grew and they milked their connections. And uh, that too is another thing. I mean, you never want to think that the best way to success is networking. And I hate the phrase networking. Mm -hmm. But uh, something that ties all these people together is, you know, they utilize the people they knew. And I, I, I don't mean that to sound sort of as, as uh, vain and, and unpalatable as it does. In a lot of cases, it's just that they had friends from college who were such great engineers and they encouraged that friend to leave his secure job at X huge tech company and come start an app with me. And it's a high risk job, you know, it's a high risk leap, but they did it because they were young. And you know what, if I'm ever going to do something like this, why not now? I mean, that's what Chang said. That's what Meyer said. They all say, uh, I knew it was a huge risk and I knew I could just instead do this other more secure thing. A lot of them had job offers from big, big companies when they graduated college or graduated business school. But they said, you know what? I'm young. I can always go back to a safe position later. I want to start my own thing. So that, that's definitely something you hear about a lot is they point to that moment where someone else might have said, oh, God, I'm just going to quit this. This isn't going to go anywhere. And they said, I'm going to stick with it. I can imagine. I mean, it seems so difficult. Have you gotten an idea of what their motivation is to work through that? Do you think it's money? Is it just their personality? Is it creativity? Any ideas? So many of them have made money. I'd like to think it's not money, though. Certainly, there, there's definitely a persona, you know, uh, I'd say being extremely confident, even maybe to the point of 
Well, there's a thin line, you know, between confident and cocky. Uh, some of the people I'd say border into cocky, and that's okay <laughs> for them. Plank, David Chang. But some of them just were sort of uh, humbly confident, if that makes any sense. That might be an oxymoron. But uh, <laughs> part of it is a personality thing, yeah. I'd say another part of it, and I'd want to distinguish it from wanting fame because, you know, you never – fame for its own end is meaningless. But it's wanting your thing to become, if not the market leader – a significant product. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. You know, it's, it's saying, gosh, there's this, there's already a great, um, a leading apparel company, Nike, they're the market leader. And then there's already even a bunch of smaller players that are great. Russell, Puma, you know, but I want my thing to become great. I think my thing has its own feel and its own attitude and its own brand. And I don't care that there's already eight, nine, 10 companies that are in the sports apparel world and are doing well. And, you know, I want my thing to be the next big thing. There, there, there are two women in the, in the book who met at Harvard Business School. They're both named Jennifer, uh, Jen Hyman and Jen Fleiss. And they created Rent the Runway. Uh, I, I sort of, and I hate to cite another tech example, but it's sort of not just tech. It's retail, it's fashion. But what it is is a website that allows young women, well, any women, but, you know, it ends up being young women, to rent out dresses, which on the face of it seems both A, meh, you know, <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and, and B, it almost seems like something obvious. Like you're surprised it didn't already exist, but therein lies its genius. I mean, it's like they found something that no one realized they needed until it came along. And they fall into that same category of, you know, it was a mix of their personalities. I think their personalities blended in the right way, but also wanting to uh, fill a gap in a market. I mean, both of these women who were, you know, were totally smart and ambitious, they had great offers from big companies. Both had worked at big name companies before they went to Harvard Business School. But when they finished business school, they said, we like this idea and we think it could become a huge uh, market leader. We think it could spawn a whole, you know, industry. And we think it also harnesses this trend we're seeing of the shareable economy. I mean, Airbnb does the same thing. Zipcar does the same thing. Netflix, in a way, you know, it's not sharing, but it's renting. And so that, too, I'd say is, is part of it. It's have you observed uh, a need or a hole in the culture that you think your idea could fill? That at least applies to the entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, it's funny. I've actually heard of them and Rent a Runway just because my fiance was like, did you know you can rent a wedding dress? <laughs> and I said, I didn't, but you can rent tuxedos. Like, right. it, it does. Like you said, it makes sense. How the heck did it not – happened before I don't, I don't know yeah we have a whole chapter built around that and the the uh, the examples in that chapter are rent the runway and airbnb which you know allows you to rent out an apartment and obviously uh just like i was saying earlier about um instagram it's it, it has totally entered the lexicon i mean at least if you're under a certain age you just know airbnb and that's really impressive considering how young it is and the other example in that chapter, and again, the, the chapter is about, you know, filling a, a gap that you discovered in the market. The other example is Kickstarter, which uh, allows, you know, projects to circumvent the uh, traditional route that startups have to go, which is pitching your idea to venture capitalists and getting them to give you money. And instead, it's like, hey, let's take this idea right to the people who are going to use our product and ask them for money. And again, you know... It, I don't mean to discredit these ideas. They're very smart. But the reason we distinguish them or group them together is like they're ideas that you almost think should have been around already or could have been. 
they're ideas that are very sort of functional and utilitarian and straightforward, but they totally caught on and caught fire and uh, exploited a gap that existed. It's always so frustrating to have those, oh my God, why didn't I think of that moment? And then realize that these people are going to be making millions of dollars off this seemingly simple idea. But it just, it wasn't there. They recognized it and they were the ones to put it out. And I think that also lends to why these people stick to their guns so much is they believe so much in the idea. And I think it's hard for myself or Chris to wrap our heads around that because we've never had that idea where it's like, this is it. I mean, I've listening. had it. I just haven't acted on it. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the idea? Uh, I don't know. You I don't like even. The, they're in the phone. In my phone, it's a list. It's disgusting. <laughs> I wanted to ask you actually. Every chapter in the book, it's so cool. I I just I love. I know it's not entrepreneurialism only, but I, I love that. And the things that these people have done are amazing. I was hoping you could share with me and our listeners more about what you guys cover in the chapter that's follow your first love because. Obviously, just from that idea, we can we can understand what it is. But I was hoping you could tell me, you know, David Chang or or Seth MacFarlane, what you got from them about following your first love. I have to say, I'm, I I love that you asked me about that because it's sort of my my pet chapter, my favorite one. <laughs> um, I mean, as I, I said earlier, you know, the the book is a group effort where there are 27 sections and. You know, I wrote, uh, I didn't write all of them. I wrote like 17 of the 27, but this was one of the chapters where I wrote all three of the sections. And I just got to know, uh, I really got to know their stories, these three guys. And, you know, we talked about Chang a little bit, but to me, Kevin Feige is really interesting. He's running Marvel Studios, which is nuts. I mean, nuts. It's just a, a huge business. And the idea is that all the people in this chapter, and, you know, maybe it's sort of, it's sort of an obvious lesson, but it's one that I think you don't often see um, exhibited. And the lesson is, you know, whatever it was that you loved doing, the first thing you loved as a kid, you know, whether it was like your hobby or, or just, you know, what you, you know, maybe you were drawing as a kid. These are people who took that and just made it their career. And that's rare. I mean, and, it, and I sort of think it's different than people who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing finance because I always loved math and I always loved working with numbers. <laughs> it's, it's different. It's, these are literally people who are, making a career out of the thing that they were doing when they were like five, six, seven years old, the thing they really loved. Uh, in Feige's case, he was a comic books geek. You know, he loved um, sci-fi, and <laughs> there's an anecdote we love. <laughs> I think we use it in the book. We used it in a story about him. <laughs> we cited it when we put him on the list. You know, sometimes you hear these little snippets about, about these people or their past that you just can't let go of because they're so fun. But the uh, the anecdote is that, when Back to the Future 2 came out and he was like a teenager, he got like 12 different posters for the movie and just covered his bedroom walls. <laughs> and, you know, he just – he sort of uh, – it was a very linear path. You know, he, uh, he went to film school and then he got an internship with uh, Lucas Films, you know, George Lucas, which is like, wow. You know, that's sort of like a dream internship. And then he was working for the people that did the first Superman movie. Oh, wow. And now he's he you know he found his way to Marvel and he's running Marvel Studios. So now for a living he gets to uh, oversee these movies about the superheroes that he read about as a kid. It's like you imagine him under the blanket with his flashlight. I just love that. I mean, the same thing is true of Chang, who always loved you know noodles, and he just decided I'm you know, I'm not going to go uh, be a line cook at a larger established restaurant. I'm going to create my own thing so that I can make the exact kind of food I always wanted to make. And that I loved eating as a kid. You know, it's funny too. I know you guys cover, 
or you talk about Elon Musk in here. And the president of the company I work for used to work for Elon. And he just talked about how smart the guy is. And I imagine that one of the things you must see throughout every person is they're just smart or they just look at things differently. I don't know. That's totally a leading question that all of our <laughs> listeners tell me not to do, but it's just a thought. Sure. It's, uh, it's funny. I, you know, <laughs> sometimes these people, sometimes we talk to people who don't quite make the list or, or frankly, even people who do make the list and they've uh, reached a high up position at a big company and they don't strike me as really outside the box thinkers. Uh, but it just goes to show you that you don't necessarily have to be, you know, completely from left field or like this wacky left brain. I don't know if it's left brain or right brain. Yeah, that brain. <laughs> right. Like crazy brain. Yeah. Um, you know, you meet people who are achieving the same level of success who, who actually seem like kind of vanilla. But yeah, they're certainly smart. I think that to be in any of these businesses, especially tech, where it's exploding and changing every day and where, you know, I mean, everyone thinks it's a bubble. Like it, suddenly it seems like every good idea just gets bought up and you can make a billion dollars in cash out. But people forget these guys are, are very smart. Um, you know, these, these men and women have come up with things or they've managed to, for the people who are at a larger company, they've managed to impress people who, frankly, usually are much older than them. And probably when a 22-year-old comes into their office and says, I think the company should do this or create this new arm, they scoff and go, okay, whippersnap, you know. Right, right. <laughs> out of here. Uh, but they're very smart and they're also very, usually they're very forward thinking and they're really um, aggressive. You know, they take risks. They're willing to advocate for themselves. No, it's it's all interesting stuff. And I know we've taken up a little bit more of your time, but I wanted to ask you one more question. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> and, th well, and this one is actually more, uh, like you said, you're 26, you write at Fortune, but you do sports coverage and all that. What advice do you have to either writers or anyone that might, I, I don't know. I just feel like you've reached a level at a, you know, fairly young age sure. that's tough to get to. What did you do to get there? I get young people who are interested in journalism. Obviously I'm young, so younger than me, uh, either current college students or recent college grads, you know, they find me on Twitter or they went to Middlebury. And so they find out about me. Uh, I get a lot of those people emailing me just asking for general advice. You know, how can I break in? It's, it's such a hard industry, and it is such a hard industry. Uh, and what I, one thing I always tell them just in general is that if you don't want to tell other people's stories, if you want to talk about yourself, if you want it to be about you, then you shouldn't do this. I mean, reporting and journalism is about telling interesting stories. You are the observer, and that's not to say that there isn't room to sort of be, in, you know, in the story. I mean, you know, the whole new wave of narrative journalism is, you know, the writer is part of the story and you're a character in your own narrative. That's fine. But, but you know, in general, it's about these other people and the interesting people that you can write about and tell their stories. And the only reason I say that is just to sort of deflect that, you know, I, I try not to talk about myself. <laughs> but what I, you know, we were talking earlier about the people who followed their first love and I guess the reason I love that chapter so much is because it, it's what I did. I mean, it's close to my heart. You hear about people who go to college and they say, you know, I'm going to be pre-med. I've always known I want to be a doctor. I'm pre-med. This is it. This is what I'm going to do. And then they take like one geology class, like intro to geology <laughs> to satisfy some requirement. And they say, oh, my God, this is it. I'm, that's it. I'm going to be a geologist. Forget being a doctor. <laughs> 
And I, I use that example because like, that's not me. Right. <laughs> I have been so linear uh, to the point where I'm, I'm sure it, it is boring to talk about. But, you know, I knew I wanted to do this when I was in middle school. Um, my mom likes to tease me because when I was little, her, her friends would say, oh, what do you want to be when you want to grow up? And I used to say, I want to write for GQ. <laughs> <laughs> that was my plan um and of course when i tell that story now people say well why aren't you at gq <laughs> yeah right but no i you know and i i went to college and i wrote for the paper and i guess i'd just say that you know the people who are going to be journalists and are going to succeed in this field a it has to be totally what you want to do nothing else you want to tell other people's stories you want to write you love reporting you love talking to people i mean i know tons of people my age who are great writers but they're not good with people and they aren't interested in people and it's not going to work. And I know people who are great at reporting. They're great at digging up facts. They're great at research, but they aren't, uh, you know, they aren't fabulous writers. And uh, this isn't to talk about myself, but I'm just saying that you have to love doing both things. You have to love telling stories and you also have to love it so much that you are fine with not making much money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so my story is is pretty linear. You know, I wanted to do this. I went to grad school at Columbia right after college. And then I uh, did an internship at the Daily News, which if you're in New York, you know, is one of the two big tabs. There's uh, the news and the post. And I like to say that I learned a lot more, far more, from that six-month unpaid, brutal internship with the Daily News than I ever did from a, a class at Columbia. Oh, I can imagine. It's all about just getting out there and, and, and working the streets and reporting and interviewing people. No, and it seems like, I mean, just as a profession, from the outside looking in, it seems awesome, especially when you write about entrepreneurs and sports. I'm like, okay, this is not fair. I'm doing something wrong in life. But <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny how you sort of develop a, a beat naturally. Most of the young writers at Fortune, we have a broad range. Uh, you know, there are more senior writers who really do have a strict beat and get to just write about that. And so I, I cover a broad range, especially because 40 under 40 is so broad. But I also have, have uh, become our, our sports business guy. Anytime that sports and money collide, uh, I'm sort of the go-to guy. And I just love that. It, it's uh, Someone said to me the other day, I don't know how you got away with having these sports and beer beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. And Seems earlier, like the best one. I, I said to John, I was like, hey, we're, we were kind of looking about all the things you wrote about. And John goes, yeah, well, I mean, he writes about uh, you know money and sports and entrepreneurs and business and tech and music. And I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Better, better question. What doesn't he write about? <laughs> Finance and Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> Investing. Yeah, there you go. Well, but, uh, but it's nice because Fortune is such a broad place. And I think that's where most um, – that, that's actually where the most fun is to be had in this profession. I mean a lot of magazines are going the opposite direction. Like the magazines that cover something really niche mm-hmm. are the ones doing the best. Like if you looked at the numbers of newsstand sales and subscriptions, you wouldn't believe. But it, it's magazines like, you know, Fisher, Fisherman's <laughs> Monthly uh, or, or, you know, Bicycling Magazine or Women's uh, Flower Potting. I mean, th- those are the magazines are doing well. And yet the places that I, I think I'd always want to be are, are places like Fortune or places like the Men's Interest Magazines that just are so broad and you get to write about a lot. No, that's awesome. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate it. This is an awesome conversation. I mean, like you said, I could talk about this stuff for days, but the book Zoom, Surprising Ways to Supercharge Your Career, it's really cool. I mean, this is what, it's basically the book version of what we try to do on the podcast. It's take people that have done great stuff and learn from them and then tell the world about it. It's been a fun project for sure. And uh, 
I just hope uh, that it gets out there and that people know it's a good read and that it's actually fun and young and sexy. No, it definitely is. And we'll link to it on our site and everything like that. So again, thank you for being on the show. Is there anywhere else that you think our, our listeners should check out or where you write or anything else specifically? Uh, sure. Uh, gosh, that's a nice question. Um, you know, most of my stuff is for fortune, but I have seen a lot of really exciting, interesting things coming around in terms of alternative publishing. I've loved watching that explode, you know, now that everyone has an iPad or at least some kind of tablet. And I, I guess I'd plug, I don't actually write for these, but I think The Atavist is a great thing. I don't know if you've followed what they do. No, um, I haven't. Yeah, The Atavist, A-T-A-V-I-S-T. And it's an iPad-only magazine with, you know, beautiful photos, great stories, and a lot of these places are doing this sort of piecemeal journalism where they put out fabulous long-form narratives and you can buy them a la carte. You know, you pay three ninety nine for one, you know, eight-page story. And I think that's a great thing. I don't know if that's where the whole industry is headed, but I think it's a model that's going to get more and more exciting. Um, you know, Byliner Originals are doing that. Amazon has begun doing that with, with Kindle singles, although I don't, you know, I'm hesitant to, to plug anything Amazon. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, there's just a lot of exciting new niche online-only uh, websites that have great writing. I'd point you to The Classical. That's a sports site I write for. Um, I'd say it has the best things of, that you'd find on Deadspin and Grantland, but with better writing. Uh, <laughs> I um, love it. The guy who created The Classical is Bethlehem Scholes, who was GQ's basketball writer. The All is great, AWL. I mean, everyone in New York knows The All. That's a, oh, just yeah. a great site. Uh, Corey Sisha is the guy who created that and he has a novel out now. So there's just a, a lot of exciting things happening in journalism that I'm really uh, jazzed about. That's awesome. No, and, and that's great stuff. We'll make sure to put links to those as well up on the site. So again, Daniel, thanks so much. Looking forward to the book coming out and uh, best of luck in the future. Thanks for being on. It's been great, guys. Great fun. Have a good one. Welcome back. You've been listening to Smart People Podcast. I don't know why I feel like I have to bring it back like we're doing a radio show today, but figure I'd just do a joiner and let them know yeah, why not? what they were listening to. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for doing everything that you do, emailing us, tweeting us, no, sending us messages don't on Facebook. thank them if they haven't done anything. What if they haven't well, done that? I'm not talking to those people specifically, the ones that have. Thank you. The ones that haven't. Do it. Go ahead and do it. Do it. Shoot us a message one day. Do it. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Support the show by clicking on the Amazon banner. Do some shopping. You've got back to school coming up. You do have school coming up. But buy all your kids' school supplies. If you're at college, buy your textbooks on Amazon. Do not buy your college textbooks from the school store. They are too expensive. Buy them on Amazon. Support our show. Thank you all. And to all, a good night. <laughs> oh.